Benjamin Franklin was an ambassador to France. And while he would be in France, while he was there, he would always attend a thing called the Infidels Club. Now, infidels simply means unbelievers or atheists. And he would go because this group would look for the most beautiful, the most majestic uh, writings that they could find. They loved stories. And they would look through literature to find the best literature. Well, Ben, being a prankster, brought a piece of literature that he knew was amazing, but he knew that if he put it in just as it was, they, they wouldn't accept it. For They were infidels, they were unbelievers of the Bible. So he took the book of Ruth, he changed the names, and he submitted it to them, he read it to them. Oh, Ben, this is amazing. This is the most beautiful love story, the most beautiful short story we've ever seen. Ben, where did you find it? And then with a twinkle in his eye, he goes, the Bible. Well, well, well maybe it's not that, that, that good. And they began to fall all over themselves trying to backtrack. We're going to look at that love story today, one of the most beautiful stories. In fact, the Jewish nation today still celebrates the book of Ruth. It's called Shavat. And they take a week and they read the book of Ruth over and over and over. And then on the Thursday night of that week, they take it and they read it all night long. And they sing the entire book. And I'm not going to sing it to you today. Amen. <laughs> and then they stay up and they, and they drink milk and, and they have ice cream and they, they eat honey to remind themselves that the, the Bible is good. So I'm going to ask that you would turn to the book of Ruth. I'm going to walk you through the story. Now, if you don't know where it's at, start at the front of your Bible and go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So it's the eighth book in. And we're going to start with chapter one. Now if you would turn with me there to Ruth chapter one, it begins with a great statement. It, it gives us the background we need to know. In the days when the judges ruled. Now we need to stop right there. The judges is the book before and here's what it means. He, they're in a time of turmoil. They're in a time of uncertainty. For with the judges, they would be walking with God. The people would walk with God and then they would start rebelling against God. They would fall deeply in their sin and they would be judged for their sin. And then when the judgment got more than they could handle, they would cry out. They would go, God, save us, save us. God in his mercy and his love would reach down and save them and he would provide a judge. And as long as the judge was alive, they'd follow God and they would have blessing and peace. But as soon as the judge died, their hearts, which were never totally for God, would rebel. And the cycle would begin over and over again. 
So it's in the time of the judges. There was a famine in the land. Deuteronomy chapter 11 tells us that the reason why there was a famine was that there was probably no judge at this time. They were in a time of rebellion. When they would rebel against God, one of the tools he would use was to allow a famine to come. And so they, they were here with a famine, so there's probably no judge. They're in a famine. And a man of Bethlehem. Now I want you to catch that word. Bethlehem means house of bread. Of all the places in Israel, if there was going to be bread, it was going to be in Bethlehem. It was the house of bread. But there's a famine, and there is no bread. Why? Because of the rebellion, there is no bread. And so this man went to sojourn, went to live in the country of Moab. Now, if you were an Israelite, that would have made you go, whoa, ho, 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 ho. What is this all about? What was he doing here? You see, Moab was a cursed nation. When the Israelites, we're going to have to go all the way back to the Exodus, when the Israelites were coming into the land, other nations would meet them, and some of them would give them bread and water and food and help them, and others would attack them. Well, Moab, the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, realized he couldn't attack them. Everyone who attacked Israel had failed. So he called a guy by the name of Balaam. Any of you recognize that name? Well, Balaam was a prophet. He was one of the few guys who was in touch with God. And Balaam was known to give blessings and cursings. That was one of his abilities. And so the king of Moab said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going we're to ask Balaam to come. And we're going to have Balaam put a curse on Israel. So he contacts Balaam. He says, I'm going to give you a lot of money. I'm going to make you rich. You're not going to have any wants. Just come. And Balaam prays to God. And God says, no. Balaam prays again. Hey, it's a lot of money. God says, no. Finally, God says, okay. You want to go? Go. And so he goes. And he has the worst donkey ride ever. His donkey goes the wrong way. His donkey finally lays down. And so he is so frustrated with his donkey. He starts to beat his donkey. And he's beating his donkey. And his donkey looks at him and says, What did I ever do to you? In Balaam's language. I've done nothing but save your life. And Balaam being so thick-headed, starts talking to his donkey. I don't know about you, but if Bubba ever spoke to me, my dog ever spoke to me in English, I think I would sit up and take notice. But he doesn't. And he says, I've saved your life. Why are you treating me this way? Well, because you're disobeying me. And then Balaam's eyes are opened. And the moment they're opened, he sees the angel of the Lord. And the angel said, if it wasn't for this donkey, you'd be dead. Oh, then what should I do? You're going to go to Balak, but you're going to say what I tell you to say. Don't you dare vary from the word of God. So he goes. And three times he gets up and Balak's going, the curse is coming. 
and a blessing comes out. And finally, Balak's just, I don't get it. Why didn't you curse them? And he goes, I got to say what God says. And so he pronounces a blessing. So Balak, being very wise, instead of sending his army, he sends his women. Because one of the powers of the ladies of that day was to help change the hearts of their men. And so they came and said, hey, you need a wife? Marry us. And if you marry us, though, you've got to worship our gods. And so uh, hideous was the fact that they turned a whole bunch of people of Israel away from the true God that God pronounced, and you need to remember this, God pronounces a curse on them, and it said that your child will not be accepted in Israel as a member of Israel, if a guy marries a Moabite woman, he, he, his child will not be accepted in Israel for ten generations. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that at the end. So the Moabites didn't like the Israelites, and the Dis Israelites didn't like the Moabites, but this guy moves in the middle of Moab. Now this guy's name, notice what it is. The name of the man was Elimech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went there to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimech, the husband of Naomi, died. Now his name meant, my God is king. But he sure didn't live like it. When times got tough, he fled the house of God and went to a foreign land. I think Naomi argued with him. Because later in the chapter, you're going to see that she says, I'm being judged by God. I think she said, don't go. Stay with the people of God. Don't go. But he went anyway. So he dies. The names of their children are names like Punny, and sickly. I mean, aren't those wonderful names? When you, when you have another child, if any of you are expecting, punny or sickly, that, that would be a good name, wouldn't it? But that's what their names mean. I think it was a sign that they knew they were under judgment, and so they died. And they took two Moabite women as wives. One was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. Orpah, just a little uh, cultural side note, Oprah of today was supposed to be named Orpah, and they mispronounced it, so she stuck with the name Oprah. Just a little side note there. So Orpah and Ruth, and the husbands die. Now in this culture, it is male-dominated culture. A woman without the protection of her husband was a very vulnerable woman. And here we have a woman taking care of two other women. And, and she knows, I can't live in this land. I am vulnerable. I need to go home. 
And even though I go home, I will still be vulnerable, but there's hope if I go home. And so she calls the two women together. We see this in in verse 6. She calls them together, and in verse 7, she says, I'm going to take off. Verse 8, she says, go back to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant you that you find rest in each of the house of your husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. There is a heart for each other. They loved their mother-in-law. You know, in our culture, we joke about mother-in-laws, don't we? But they loved their mother-in-law. They loved her with all their heart. And so she loved them, and she has poured into them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know about the God of Israel. You see, when you would marry an Israelite man, you were supposed to take his God, not the other way around. They took his God. But notice what she, they say. No, no, we will go back to you. Verse 11, Naomi says, no, no, go back. I can't give you any more sons. You see, the law at that time was if you die, if your son died and you had another son he would marry the wife of the first. So that made guys, that made the, who your older brother married very important to you because you might be marrying her. And so the idea was that they would provide, they would provide an heir. And, it, and so this is what this law is. And she says, hey, I can't give you any more kids. First of all, my worth is diminished. I can no longer bear children. And in this male-dominated society, a woman was only good for what she could bring into the marriage if she could give children. And if she lost the ability to give children, she lost worth. And so she looks at him and she says, guys, I, I don't have any worth. I'm weak. I can't give you children. I can't provide for you. So go back. Go where you can have a chance. And this made sense. And Orpah kisses her and leaves. And the Bible never condemns her for leaving. But notice what in, in verse 14, but Ruth clung to her. This is, she has her in a full body hug. She's not going to be pried off her mother-in-law. This is, this is what it means when the two shall become one. It's the idea of leave and cleave. She is grabbing onto her and saying, I'm not letting go. And so we have this amazing Amazing talk. In verse 15, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law, she's smart. She went. Go. And notice what she says. Go back to your people and go back to your gods. And here's what Ruth says. Now, you need to understand what Ruth is about to do is make a covenant promise. An unbreakable promise. In fact, 
as a pastor performing weddings. This statement has been quoted in wedding ceremonies. It is a wedding statement. And notice what it says. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. When you die, or where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything else, but death parts you from me. She pledged her life. This is her commitment. She is making a conversion statement. She is giving herself completely over to, Ruth, or to Naomi and to the God of Naomi. She says, I'm not going to go back to my old gods. He is my God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is my God. And I'm going to do this. And I'm asking him that if I forsake him and I forsake you, that he kill me. Friends, that's commitment. That's a lot more than, well, I give you myself as long as I like it. She's saying, it's all or nothing. This conversion moment, this commitment, this covenant will come back to play. So tuck that in the corner of your mind. So they go. They get to Bethlehem. Hey, Naomi, you're back. This is great. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Because God's hand's been against me. And so they set up house. Now I want you to think about this. Ruth is going to a land where she knows no one but Naomi. She is of the hated Moabites. She is an unprotected woman. She has no power, no strength. She will be oppressed. And yet she goes. That's commitment. There's a young woman, she was complaining to her father about how, how life was tough. And her father looked at her and said, I want you to get three pots of water, put them on the stove, and we're going to boil the water. In one pot, I want you to put a, a carrot. Another pot, I want you to put an egg. And the third one, I want you to put coffee beans. And so she did and brought it to a boil. And after a while, the father says, now I want you to pull them out. What do you find with the carrot? And she goes, oh, the carrot's all soft and limp. And she goes, yeah, but when it went in, it was strong and hard. You see, under testing... It melted. Tell me about the egg. Well, the egg, it, it was soft on the inside. Now it's hard. Yeah, sometimes in testing, we allow our hearts to grow hard and cold. Tell me about the, the coffee beans. She goes, well, the coffee beans have basically made coffee. Ah, so they've changed the water. What do you want to be? Do you want to be a person under testing who changes their environment, who changes their world? Ruth became that type of person. She changed her world. So she goes. They get there. They're hungry. God has a plan. The way God works is he, he says, okay, now when you guys plant your fields, I want you to leave the corners for the poor. 
they will go out, they will take the corners, and then they can follow and pick up whatever falls. You, they have to work for their food, but we are going to give them a way of doing it with dignity and honor. And, and here is Ruth, a stranger, vulnerable, weak, and she goes out, and God's hand directs her right to the right field. She goes to the field of Boaz. He is a kinsman. He's related to Ruth's former husband. He is a kinsman redeemer. That was big in that culture. He had a responsibility toward Ruth. So Ruth gets at the field and she starts working. And we see in the next chapter, she works and she works and she works. And she takes just a short break and she goes back out and she works. And Boaz comes into the scene. Boaz sees her out there and he says, hey, 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 whoa, 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 who is that? Who's that? Chapter 2. And verse 4, And Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Boaz is a man of God. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Who is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. She had a right to do that, but she asked, Do you notice this, this heart of compassion, this heart of humility? And so she came and she's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. In other words, she works hard. And Boaz goes to her. Notice his word of endearment. My daughter. My daughter. And then his words of protection. Do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? In other words, no one's going to hurt you. you I, I, I need to take a side note right here. Boaz is the picture of power. He is a man. He is a godly man. He is a wealthy man. He has power. And in this moment of power, he looks at a person who does not have power, and he says, I have a responsibility to use my power to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Oh, friends, when we are in positions of power, what do we do? Do we look out and say, I will protect the weak. I will protect those who have no voice. I will reach out and protect those who need my protection. Or do we go merrily along our way? Boaz uses his power in a godly manner. And then for the entire season, it says that she worked. And Boaz gives her blessing after blessing. He, he tells his men, hey, she's going to drink the water you draw. She doesn't have to bring water herself. And by the way, you're going to drop some grain for her. You're going to make it easier on her. And for the whole season of harvest, he pours out blessing on her. But for a whole season of harvest, she never takes advantage of it. She works. And the community starts calling her a woman of worth, a woman of excellence. For her character proves itself. 
go to chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, whose young women, who, with whose young women you were? See, he's willing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Now that uncovering the feet is very important. Turn back to chapter 2 with me. In chapter 2, it says this, verse 12, The Lord will repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given you, this is Boaz to Ruth, by the Lord, the God of Israel, who, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz says, God's wings will cover you, Ruth. God's wings will cover you. You will be covered by God. Notice what she does. She uncovers his feet. Now you're going, I don't get this. What, what is going on here? Why is Naomi saying this? Well, basically, to put it very, very simply, Naomi is saying, Ruth, why haven't you popped the question? Why haven't you asked him to marry you? <laughs> you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Why would she have to ask him? Well, you need to understand. It's called the kinsman redeemer. In that culture, as I mentioned, if a, a, if a husband died, a nearest relative could do two things. One, they would purchase the land that that relative had so that it would stay within the family. And secondly... They would marry the wife to produce an heir. And so they would, they would, and then they would give all the protection, all the power, all the gifts to that wife. And they would do all the work. They would set it up. They would, they would provide everything. But they couldn't do it unless they were asked. The wife had to ask. She had to request. The kinsman redeemer could be standing there going, I will do whatever you want. I will take care of you. I will buy you out of the problem. I will purchase you out of slavery. I will purchase you. And by the way, let's say you ran into debt. You would often be sold into slavery, but a kinsman redeemer could come and purchase you out of your debt. But they had to be asked. Will you free me from my slavery? So she goes in. Boaz is at the threshing floor. That means he's getting everything ready. This is Boaz at the end of his of his harvest. This is Boaz at his pinnacle of power. 
and he's laying on his wealth. He's sleeping on top of his wealth. He's eaten. He's had to drink. He is now at the pinnacle of power. And she comes in and says, I am weak. I need you. And so she uncovers his feet. He looks down. Whoa, what's going on? Why are you here? And she says these amazing words to him. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She says, I I want you to redeem me. Would you cover me? Would you bless me? Would you put me in your family? Would you redeem me from a situation I can't change? Now Naomi is going to play a part in this. And so he looks at her and notice notice what he says, verse 10, chapter 3. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this the last this last kindness greater than the first in which you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true, I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning he will redeem you. Good. Let him do it. But if he does not, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Stay until morning. And so she lays at his feet, and then morning comes, and she goes back, and he gives a gift for Naomi. In other words, it's, Naomi, I know you're behind this. I know you're pushing this. And you were right to do so. And so he sends food back to Naomi. This is in essence, her dowry. And Naomi says these words, he will not stop until this is completed. He will allow nothing to stop him until it's completed. And so he goes to the gate, he finds, and the gate is kind of like the center of the city. It's where every uh, transaction takes place. He calls the ten elders together. He says, hey, Uh, Naomi wants to sell her land. She's in financial straits. She needs to sell her land. And you, sir, are the closest redeemer. Will you buy it? And he goes, yes, I'd love to buy that land. And then he says, but by the way, you'll have to marry Ruth. Oh, I can't do that because uh, that'll mess up my own inheritance. I'll tell you what, you can do it, Boaz. If you want to do it, go for it. He says, okay. And this is kind of funny to us. They take off their sandals. And exchange sandals. What that had to do, I have no idea. But that was the custom. Here's my stinky feet. You can have it. You know? But they do. And it says that he takes her and he marries her. She has a child. That child is Ovid. Ovid will have a son named Jesse. Jesse will have a son named David. This outcast that no one wanted 
This oppressed one becomes great-grandma to the king of Israel. All because of a redeemer. Now some of you are going, hold it, Pastor Greg. Ovid, Jesse, David. Pastor Greg, that's three generations. Pastor Greg, you said earlier that it had to go to ten generations before they could be part of Israel. How in the world are they allowing David to be king? He shouldn't even be considered part of Israel because he's an eighth Moabite. What in the world is going on here? Is God playing favorites? Well, I want to give you two answers. The first answer is found in Ruth's conversion. You see, when she converted over and then lived a life of conversion, they accepted her immediately into the family. The second is found in Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there with me. Romans chapter 3. And I want you to start at verse 22. Oh, we'll start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, in other words, a satisfaction for all that is done wrong by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. You see, when Ruth was coming, when Ruth became part of the family, God overlooked it because he was looking forward to the cross. You see, God says, I'm going to take care of that at the cross. When the cross happened, it not only went forward, it went backwards. And let's, I, I, I know I'm being technical here, but the cross covered them not looking at this one law. Because it would be covered. And especially because not only would Ruth become part of David's line, the king of Israel, but she would be part of the king of kings line. She would become a relative of Jesus Christ himself. All because of a kinsman redeemer. Jesus, according to here in Romans 3, is our kinsman redeemer. Jesus, on the cross, buys us out of sin. He buys us out of the wrath of God. He buys us out through His blood. He redeems us. And just like Ruth, all we have to do 
is ask. Have you asked? He will do all the work. All we have to do is ask. There's a little boy. This little boy, it was back in the days before electronics, and so he built a beautiful sailboat. And he tied a string to it. And he took it down to the river. And he would run back and forth along the shore having a great time pulling his little sailboat in the water. And one day the string broke. And he ran after it, but the river was too fast, and and it disappeared. About a week later, he went to town with his mother. And there in the window of one of the stores, he saw his boat, and he walked in. He says, this is my boat. I lost it. This is my boat. Look inside. You'll see my initials. I put my print upon it. It's my boat. And the man said, "I, I, I don't doubt you, son. But when a man brought it in, I bought it from him. I paid him for it. So I will give you your boat, but you have to pay me back what I paid out. I won't sell it until you buy it from me. All summer, that that boy worked. He drove everyone in the neighborhood, he drove everyone in town crazy trying to find odd jobs. But towards the end of the summer, he finally had enough money, and he walked in. And he laid the money out on the counter. And the man reached behind the counter and pulled out the boat and put it in his arms. And the young boy cradled this this boat and he walked out the door. And as he walked out, he said this. You're mine. You're all mine. You're twice mine. For you were mine because I made you. And you are mine because I bought you. You are mine. When we cry out to Jesus Christ, when we say, redeem us, Jesus takes us in his arms and he says, I made you. You're twice mine. I made you. And I bought you. You're mine. You are all mine. Father, we ask now as we continue to worship you that you would remind us that the person that God uses, that you use, is a person like Ruth, a person who wholly commits to you, a person who wholly depends upon you, a person who cries out to you, And when we cry out, you move heaven and earth to make us yours, completely yours.